In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. God our Father, you will all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Send workers into your great harvest, that the gospel may be preached to every creature, and your church gathered together by the word of life and strengthened by the power of the sacraments. May advance in the way of salvation and love through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. <coughs> now you have to excuse me. I'm coming down with a cold or something. So I'm hoping my entire family has the flu. So I'm hoping it's not that. Which I guess don't shake my hand afterwards. Um, anyway, what tonight's topic, um, before we get into it, actually, I wanted to start with three quotes that sort of lead into it. Um, and it's a topic that sort of by the title, can appear to be a little trivial, um, but is very far from trivial. And so, anyway, the three quotes that I want to start with are, first one is from Aristotle, where he said that we are not at leisure in order to be at leisure. And then you have um, St. Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless, are restless until they rest in you, O Lord. And then the last is from Christ himself when he said, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Now, um, we live in a modern world with a large amount of free time. And never in the history of the world has there been the excess of amounts of free time. Um, that if you look at throughout all of history, most people spent their entire lives working almost all the time, um, well, I guess they did have some free time, which we're going to get to, were working most of the time in order just to sustain themselves. And then they would use that, that precious time um, when they weren't working to sustain themselves for what was called leisure. Um, now, nowadays, we have come up with all sorts of labor-saving devices and all these things so that we don't have to work nearly as hard. And so the end result is we have all this free time. And yet... The interesting thing is while we have more free time than anyone's ever had before, we have the least leisure that the world has ever had before. Um, and, so, and the reason is because free time and leisure do not necessarily correspond. Um, just having free time does not necessarily lead to the, sort of the forgotten virtue of leisure. And what we've actually ended up doing with all the free time is that we've taken the idea of true leisure and instead we've sort of substituted it in its place, not just, un or say not just something different, but actually the exact opposite. Um, meaning that we sort of took the antithesis of leisure, its polar opposite, and then put it in its place. And so that's what we're going to start with, is we're going to start talking about um, what is this sort of opposite of leisure that the world has adopted. And what it is, is it's, in English, the word we use for it is, the word is sloth. Um, but we need to be careful with the English word that we tend to think of a very certain thing for sloth. We think of just like the, the sloven person, the, the couch potato, when that is only a symptom of the, this vice. Um, what in, in Latin, the vice that we refer to as sloth is what's actually called achadia, um, and that Achadia actually comes from the Greek um, Acadia, which means indifference, and, or, or you say indifference or an absence is another way of putting it. Um, Acadia and 
kados, which means care, so like an absence of care. And so sloth is one of the, or chadia, it's one of the seven deadly sins, um, or the seven capital sins, as they're sometimes called, meaning the seven chief sins from which all other sins flow, meaning that if you're to look at any sin, it falls into one of the ca- these categories. And interestingly, they all, all of these sins have a corresponding virtue that goes with them. So, for instance, like when you go through the seven capital sins, like pride, its corresponding virtue is humility. Greed or avarice, its corresponding um, virtue is justice or liberality. Um, lust, the corresponding is chastity. Envy, its brotherly love. Gluttony, its temperance. Anger, its meekness. And then achadia, which is the last one, which we usually translate as sloth, is leisure. And so, um, interestingly, Dante, who we're going to be the next three weeks on, he sort of categorized all of these sins as he called them offenses against love. And he put them into groups accordingly, where he said you have first you have the sins of perverted love, which, he, which is pride, envy, and anger. You have the sins of excessive love of earthly goods, which is greed and gluttony and lust. And then you have the last one, which is by itself, which is insufficient love, which is the sin of Achadia. Now, what exact... Um, I think I put it on the handout for you. I can't spell. That's why I put it, put it there. But A-C-E-D-I-A, I think. Now, now what exactly is Achadia? That... We have multiple slides on this because of the fact that it's actually something that's much deeper than what we normally think of as sloth. And so what it ultimately is that um, Echadia is a sort of a... Actually, I should back up and say everything I'm talking about tonight is sort of based off of a couple of different sources. That the title and everything is based off of a famous book by... There's a Catholic 20th century Catholic philosopher named Joseph Pieper. Um, who was good friends with Pope Benedict XVI. They studied a lot together. They were part of like um, the same group, that they were close friends. And he wrote a lot of different Catholic philosophical and theological works. And one of his most famous books is what's called The Leisure, the Basis of Culture, um, which really should be required reading for all college freshmen, but it's not. Um, and so anyway, most of what I'm saying I'm taking directly from him. Um, I'm not very good at coming up with my own ideas, but I can steal them, which... I think it was T.S. Eliot that said that um, good poets borrow, great poets steal. So that's the, um, the idea there. And then the other portion of what it's taken is from John, the blessed John Henry Newman. Um, I took a bunch from him, too, in one of his books on the idea of university. Um, so anyway, that's sort of taking everything from them. Now, anyway, um, so what Achadia is, is it's a deep-seated lack of calm which makes leisure impossible. So that's the first thing to understand. um, And we'll get into the idea of sloth with it. But it's a restlessness that's a restlessness. The dot dot does not only mean inactivity, as people commonly understand it, but rather um, what the philosopher Kierkegaard, how he put it, he said that it's a despairing refusal to be oneself. It's refusal to... Or another way of putting it is the refusal to follow the ancient Greek aphorism, know thyself. Um, that, and, this, and this refusal can actually take two different extremes. You can have the one extreme of the 
couch potato, and you can have the other extreme of the workaholic, which are both are just manifestations, actually, of the same problem of refusing to know thyself. So, and ultimately what it is, it's when someone refuses to be what God wants them to be. Um, and basically, and it means that they refuse to be what they really and ultimately are. Um, and basically a good way of putting this is, um, it's that it's the self-discernment of learning what God created you for, what your life means, what you're supposed to do, it is hard work. So what a chadia added root is, it's the refusal to do the hard work of discernment in your life. Um, and so ultimately, or I can say is the unexamined life. And so ultimately the result of a chadia is it's a sort of a fleeing of reality. It's the idea that, that reality is something that is fixed, it is unmoving, we cannot change reality, so instead of trying to change reality, it's an ignoring of reality, an attempt to fling reality because reality makes demands upon us, reality is difficult, and so it's a lot easier to go through life if you just try to ignore reality. It's, the, I guess, the idea of ignorance is bliss. Now, um, and also ultimately, achadia is a laziness. Like, it is sloth, but it's not physical sloth. It's intellectual and spiritual sloth. Um, see, see, it's... Because um, it, it, it's a refusal, to, like I said, to engage the tough questions th that one needs to ask in their life, to answer those questions. Um, it's a failure to sort of marvel at the um, received reality. Um, and so instead... Um, ultimately, um, like I said, one has to shut themselves off from reality, and it ends up with different symptoms. It ends up, ends up symptoms of this, this achadia, of this refusal to engage, this intellectual and spiritual laziness. Like I said, it can result in that couch potato. It can result in that workaholic. It can, it can result in someone that's bored, um, and that's something I'm going to come back to, of boredom being a symptom of achadia, because those are all just methods of trying to, Ways, basically, masks that people put up to try to, um, to, try to keep from having to do the work of knowing themselves. Um, or this is why it's called like the insufficient love, because it's a, love is hard work. You have to know who you're loving. You have to sacrifice. You have to do all these things. And it doesn't want to do all that. It's, so it's, it's, um, it's intellectual and spiritual laziness. Now... And like I said, that is part of a, one of the parts of Echadia is that there's a certain restlessness that is involved because of the fact that all men are created, I guess we come to the world with a restlessness that can only be f answered in Christ Jesus. That, that it goes back to those quotes that I started with, that all men are restless until they rest in God. So, one of the, so basically what Echadia is, is it's instead of going through the work to find that rest, it's sort of living in that restlessness. And, um, and, it's, and um, it sort of shows, like I said, it, and it can have send those two different directions of overwork as well as the lack of work. And we're going to 
cover each of them and how it affects or how it creates those individually. Um, now, and feel free to interrupt me with any questions or anything. I'm not quite as, I don't know, I'm feeling lower, lower more low-key with the things. And I guess it's more philosophical terms and stuff that it might need to be explained as I go on as opposed to, I guess when you're doing like church history or something like that, it usually lends itself to questions more at the end. But I think this probably lends itself more to questions in the middle if you ever have a question. Um, feel free to interrupt me. Now, one of the interesting things about Achadia as well is that it ultimately it is the sin against the third commandment um, and as well. And that leisure, which we're going to get to, which is the opposite of Achadia, is the virtue of fulfilling the third commandment of keeping holy the Sabbath, which, or God, the soul's resting in God. Um, now, so let's go through each of the two manifestations we can say of the of Achadia. And the first is what we call the idea of like the workaholic. That this is the idea of not necessarily, and that it's not just going to be actually work, but this is the idea of distracting oneself is so that they don't have to so that one doesn't have to know themselves, so that they don't have to do that intellectual and spiritual work. So oftentimes that this is a manifestation of that um, achadia and that people that work all the time as sort of a means of escape, um, that they sort of, they meet trying to escape from that restlessness. Um, they try to crowd out all the other dimensions of their life, that they sort, sort of, um, that this achadia, one of the things I said, it produces boredom. With the overworked, it produces boredom in all things but work. Because they just there's um, again silence to the person with the chadia um, is deafen, it's deafening it does, they don't want to hear it it bothers them they don't want to have nothing to do they want to work all the time because there's some it's in, too intimidating um, to actually have leisure and there that one of the main manifestations of this so I guess looking when you look at different generations that I would say with it sort of the um, more like baby boomer type generation of, that have been more successful in their um, work careers and things like that, it takes sort of, can take more of the classic overwork, um, sort of the classic overwork manifestation. Within sort of the younger generations, the more and more that overwork is not so much how they're practicing their workaholicism, but they sort of take that same principle and then they apply it to, well, we have to sort of do everything in their lives. Or you can see this in the idea of like sort of like the extreme sports culture or something like that as well. We got to go do activities all the time to try to distract myself. Um, we have to go, go travel everywhere, visit everything. Or as Pope Benedict put it, he says it's sort of like this temptation by particularly young people, this idea that they have to sort of like drink the chalice of life to the last drop, that they have to go and do everything, um, which is a manifestation of this restlessness and this uh, refusal to engage um, in life's questions. And then the, another thing that, it, another aspect of this that falls into the sort of category of the workaholic is that oftentimes that what happens is... Um, that particularly with young people, that there is 
can often say, one, be in temptation to distract oneself from the important questions of life, or the other, um, what often will happen, is a despair that there actually are answers to the important questions of life. And so what often can happen is that people, if they despair that there are answers, they actually end up sort of embracing the restlessness or the idea of, well, maybe there is no final destination, so it all becomes about the journey. And they sort of end up confusing the journey for the final destination. And I think one of the, sort of an anecdote, anecdote, not an anecdote, anecdote about this is I um, have my brother's brother-in-law, who I'm confident none of you know, so I can gossip about him. Um, He is very much falls into this category of restlessness and achadia um, in his life in lots of different ways. And I remember going out to dinner with him a couple years back. And at, at that time, there was a movie that had just come out called Into the Wild. And I don't know if any of you have ever seen this. And he starts telling me about this movie. And what it is, is it's the story of this guy who had gone to like Princeton, this young man, his family had lots of stuff, he had a successful career. He couldn't figure out what on earth it was all for. He couldn't, didn't know what life meant. So he decided to just get rid of everything and become basically a classic hobo, traveling on boxcars and everything around the country. And then he ended up living up in an abandoned bus in Alaska where he ended up starving to death. And then I, and when he starts talking about this, he was all excited about and how moving this movie was. And I looked at him. I said, that's... I said, that's stupid. Um, and I'm like, and, but, he, but he was really genuinely moved by this because he sort of adopted this idea of, well, there's no final journey, destination, so as long as you have fun on the journey, then that's all that really matters. So that's sort of, I mean, depressing because it was basically they're embracing the despair is what, what, it, um, what the end result is. Now, so that's sort of one Way that so you get sloth that leads to overwork, which is sort of counterintuitive but true. But then the other sort of symptom is what we call sort of like the amusement culture, and it's the same idea that you're going to distract yourself from you're going to distract yourself from having to answer life's questions by just amusing yourself or like putting yourself into a stupor um, is another way of putting it. Um, and this is, so this is sort of like, in, instead of, so one, um, one way embraces too much work, the other way embraces like the wrong kind of leisure, like sort of like unleisure. So it's the idea that, um, that you're going to just have um, entertainment all the time, that this, um, that this, that you have, you're going to get bored unless you're constantly distracted and, able, and distracting yourself all the time with different things. Um, and I guess well, if you ever want to see, like, this is a huge epidemic across America. All you have to do is, I guess Jay Leno's not on anymore, is he? But I remember he used to have, like, his, um, his jaywalking segments where he would go and he would talk to people, like, walking down the street and just ask them basic life issues. And every time you watch it, it's pretty evident that this is how most people go through life. It's they don't want to think about any of the deep questions of life, so they'll just distract themselves all the time. Um, and so that's exactly what the amusement culture does. And the amazing thing about, like this goes back to when I said we have all this free time, that people have so much free time and yet they never feel relaxed. And part of it is 
that um, just like too much sleep makes one sort of tired, sluggish, or apathetic, so, um, excess entertainment can make one bored, restless, and anxious. It's like anyone who's ever sat down and watched too much television knows the awful feeling that takes place afterwards. And you're like, I just watched way too much television, and I feel terrible. Um, that it, but it's true. And so anyway, and a, but it also it ultimately leads to boredom. And so that's a good quote here is that for only someone who has lost the spiritual power to be at leisure can be bored. Um, now, all this is to say that entertainment is not inherently bad, um, but rather that, like with all things, it just needs to be taken in moderation. Um, but interestingly, on an interesting sort of, I, guess I use the word interesting too much, but on a side note, but if it is interesting, it doesn't matter. Um, on a side note, um, with this sort of adopting of the amusement culture, that there is a fundamental need within man for leisure in its fullest sense, that we sort of take our amusement culture and we try to um, replace true leisure with it. And so one th- when we get into talking about what leisure is, that we're going to talk about sort of basically the ultimate end of leisure, which is um, basically in divine worship. That when you look at substitute leisure, that oftentimes it takes on many of the same characteristics as religion. Now, so for instance, like professional sports. Now, I say this as a very large professional sport fan, that professional sports, when they become sort of, inter, um, I guess, can good. I guess a good way of trying to say can ends up replacing what true leisure really is. And you look at, for instance, take like an NFL game, that it's ultimately almost like a minor like religious ceremony when you look at an NFL game. Everyone has like their special dress that they wear. You, they have like their vestments that they wear for it. They actually have times that they're supposed to stand, times that they're supposed to, things they're supposed to recite, things they're supposed to sit, when to say their prayers. Um, they like it has all is very liturgical um, because it's this idea. Well, we're going to substitute leisure. Then let's. Um, but that being said, I guess NFL can fit into true leisure at times. Um, so. It had, but it, not at all times. All right. Go Patriots. No. All right. Now, um, sorry. <laughs> so, so now we can talk about what actual leisure is. Sorry for repeating pi- pictures. I couldn't find another good one. Now, anyway, so if we talked about what the opposite of leisure, which is achadia or the refusal to know the, thyself, that obviously the opposite is the opposite definition of that. Or another way we can put it is it's an attitude of mind and condition of the soul that fosters a capacity to receive the reality of the world, meaning that reality is something fixed that is um, defined in, in ultimately in God himself that we cannot... Um, we, that we cannot influence, but rather we can only accommodate, we can only attune ourselves to it, we can only receive it. So what leisure is, is it's trying to uh, basically get ourselves as po- ready as possible to receive divine reality. Now, um, there are three elements. There are three elements of true leisure um, that we're going to go through that make it a lot easier to understand when, when you understand the three parts. Now, um, I should apologize. The second part has a slight tangent that goes off of it, and then I come back to the third, so if that bothers you, too bad. Now. Can I ask a question? Yes. Um, 
No, oh, yeah. Yes, exactly. That you start with the reality and then. That's exactly what it is. I mean, because all that stuff that we talked about is what formed all these, the worldview of them. Um, and this is exactly what's been adopted. And this, the idea of basically our taking the opposite of leisure nowadays has been influenced by all those philosophers, and in particular, actually, Karl Marx. Um, our understanding of leisure and work and everything is extremely Marxist. Um, yeah, and, and what the, the whole purpose of work um, and thinking that everything has to be useful, all that is, is we've adopted in, in all sorts of our idea of education, we've adopted, Marxism has sort of leaked into, and I don't mean just like communism, like sharing everything, but his view of history, his view of um, the worker has become sort of the norm for most of Western society. Um, but, so, all right, so the first element of what true leisure is, is stillness, or we can say sort of silence, or a receptivity where one stops and actually allows um, reality to present itself to them. Um, now, um, that in some good quotes with this is, is that for only the silent here, the wise man seeks the silence that deafens every fool. Um, that. Basically, it's most people, they, they, silence bothers them. They're sitting in the car and the radio is not on. It truly, truly bothers them. They cannot do it. If they're home by themselves, they have to have the TV on. Like most people cannot handle silence, um, which is a shame because it's interesting when you think about the lack of silence to the modern world is completely unique. That if you were to live 200 years ago, the world would be mostly silent. Um, you go outside that if, unless you're like in the busy midst, middle of the city, you would go outside and you would hear nothing. You would hear, um, and actually even go back farther, you go into the Middle Ages, you truly would hear nothing. Um, and an interesting thing, if any of you ever been to like the Redwood National Forest or, um, or, any, or like the sequoias out in California, you go walking out there and you stop, you don't hear a thing. And part of it is because the trees are so large, all the birds are up above where you can even hear them. So an interesting thing about the Middle Ages is that all the trees back then were like that size. And so you walk outside, you wouldn't even hear birds singing. You just hear nothing. You wouldn't hear highways in the distance. You wouldn't hear any of those things. But even go back like 100 years ago. I know, it's kind of weird. But, but you go back 100 years ago, I guess you would hear maybe some birds at times, but go to the Redwood National Forest sometime and it'll creep you out how silent it is. Um, now, the... But that is one of the things that they actually do talk about a lot of times in accounts of the Middle Ages. They go out and just the utter silence of it. Um, but then the idea is you go back 100 years ago, but before you have like television and the radio, or even like music. Like if you wanted to hear music, you need to hear people playing live music. 
So the idea of having all this perpetual sound all the time is a completely brand new thing. Now, so, but leisure requires that silence because you, sometimes when you're sitting, it's like you go to adoration and you sit in silence that with the first 15 minutes you're there, usually you don't get that much good prayer done. It's not until you've been there for a while and you've really started to be steeped in the silence that you actually start to start thinking about the like really deep things. Your prayer starts to become fruitful. That silence um, is extremely, extremely important. And for instance, if you ever wanted to wondered why, and I said it's not just silence but stillness. That it's, so it's not just vocal silence, but it's also just sort of a slowing down of everything. And if you've ever wondered, like, for instance, Father Newman, I was talking to him the other day, and he was talking about the procession he does at the 11 o'clock Mass where it's painfully slow, and it looks like how could people even walk that slow? Like, they're going like, to tip over or something. He said that the reason he does that is he wanted it to be painfully slow to try to force people into stillness. Um, now... Um, whether it just makes you want to move or antsy on the other hand is up to you. But, but the idea is that stillness of slowing down and just stopping um, is necessary. Now, so prayer, contemplation, meditation, or actually, which are all part of leisure, they all require silence. And part of it is, is if you think about it as being a receptive to reality, that you can't hear someone say something to you if you're talking. Um, you can't um, you can't be receptive reality if you're if with if there's perpetual noise that drowns it out. Now, and sort of this is what, for instance, like in the Bible, it says, "Be still that I know and know that I am God." Um, what is meant by it? And it, it's also if you think about it, it's like with a. Now I'm gonna have a brain cramp. I don't remember if it's Elijah or Elisha, which was the one that hears it's Elijah, right? That hears God in the whispering wind. All right, yeah. Um, that it's the idea that, that only when, he, that when Elijah, that the, the thunderstorm came, he did not hear God. There's this great fire and he doesn't hear God. There's this earthquake, he doesn't hear God. But it was only in this whispering wind that, that he finally was able to hear God. And so if he had not been silent, if he had been like singing on the hilltop, um, I guess like Sound of Music style, he would not have heard God in that, um, in that whirlwind. I'm not whirlwind, in that whispering wind. Now, so that's the first element. Now, the second element, which is kind of a pathetic slide because I couldn't find a better picture, is that it's non-utilitarian, true leisure. And by this, is simply meant that it is a time when we produce nothing that in the sense of economic utility um, or anything practical. It's like... Um, if you've seen Father Barron's Catholicism series, that his, um, his video on the Eucharist, he starts by talking, he actually touches on this. He doesn't, he says it in kind of a weird way, but he touches on this in that he says like that, how Aristotle said that the best thing in life are the most useless. And he doesn't mean that they're useless, um, which is something he probably could have explained a little better in the video series. But it's not that they're useless, it's that they serve no earthly use meaning they serve no they do not serve another end. They are non-utilitarian. You don't do it for the sake of something else. You do it because it is a good in, of, in and of itself. Um, now, so, and I'll say that again, that, that leisure, true leisure, are activities that, that, can only, that are only done 
because they are good in and of themselves, not because they serve any earthly practical function. Um, and ultimately, we can say that nothing is truly a good in and of itself because when we say that, what we mean is that it serves no earthly function. It points only towards the true, the good, and the beautiful, meaning God himself. That's the reason you do it, because it's good, because it's true, because it's beautiful. Now, and this ultimately is when we say, come back to this idea of like leisure being the basis of culture, that that is where all the great works of culture come from, is become from this idea that you do it um, because it is a good thing to do, not because for any practical reason. And a great ex- one of the great examples of this, and sort of one of the greatest examples of all of like true leisure, for instance, um, is actually coming out of work. And this is something I'll come back to, that sometimes leisure actually has an element of work involved, which is a sort of a weird thought. But, for instance, in the Middle Ages, um, that when they would build the large Gothic cathedrals, that they would actually, the craftsmen that were building the things, um, that they would, first of all, they wouldn't get paid for all the stuff they were doing, which would distinguish the work they were doing on the cathedral from the work they were doing basically for money, that the work they were doing for money was for an earthly good, it was utilitarian and not true leisure. The same work that they were doing on the cathedral could actually be, could be a form of leisure in that they were doing it entirely because it was a good, beautiful thing to do. And a great example of this is that in the Gothic cathedrals, a lot of them up in the rafters have these beautifully carved statues that no human being can see. Um, and they're just placed up in the rafters where the only person that can see them is God. And so when the idea is that they didn't do that because they were getting paid, they didn't do that for any reason other than it was just a good thing to do. It was a good in and of itself. Now, so going back with leisure, that even so, even when we try, and this is a common thing, the common mistake, is that oftentimes people, um, Catholics that are sort of hell-bent on this sort of workaholicism, that they will actually take that approach toward leisure, which doesn't work. They'll think like, all right, I need to adopt some leisure in my life because it'll make me a better worker. It's basically, it's kind of like the idea of, well, I need to go to prayer time that way I'll be better at doing work than the rest of my life. Not because the prayer is good in of itself, because it's just going to make me more efficient. Um, which, in leisure can't even be approached with the idea that, well, if I do this leisure, it'll just make the culture better. Well, no. you has to be done because it's just a good thing to do. It might have those side effects of making the culture better. It might have the side effect of making you more efficient, but that's not the reason to do it. Um, that... And ultimately, that's one of the main differences between something that's utilitarian and non-utilitarian, is that both can have good um, practical effects, but the main thing is, well, what's the main reason you're doing it? So, um, so for instance, um, sort of skipping around from my notes, which will throw me off. But so, for instance, um, if you were to go like practice true leisure, um, it'll end up having lots of good practical effects in your life, but if you approach it for the practical effects, you're going to kill it. You're going to ruin it. It's going to be like kind of like taking a, um, something and dissecting it that you always end up killing it. Um, that, but, but if you, so if you, but if you approach it the proper way, you'll end up with those same good effects. Or so it's, but entirely the motivation can actually be very important. Um, and this is something that will really make sense 
with the next slide when I get into what's called liberal arts versus the servile arts. But anyway, um, so like I said, it's not that leisure necessarily means no activity, but rather it's activity that is done um, as a good and of itself. Now, so this is something that oftentimes we can sort of think like, all right, if I like, need to relax, I need to be doing nothing. But no, like leisure can involve work. It can involve doing something, but, it, but it's a, a distinction between what we call servile work and liberal work or liberal labor. And what this distinction comes from, like I said, the church distinguishes between the two different types of work. And the idea is that liberal comes from, it doesn't mean that it's like having to do like the Democratic Party or something like that. It comes from the Latin liber, which means free. So you have the work of the free man versus the work of the servile man or the servant. Um, those are the distinctions between the two. And what's meant by the work of the free man is it means it's work that both makes you free and is done by someone who is free. So you think of like, think of in the ancient world or back when, or think of like, I guess the, not that long ago when you had like a rich aristocracy in England and, um, and other places in Europe, that what defined one as an aristocrat in places like England was that they did not have a job. That was actually one of the key defining features of an aristocrat was that you did not have a job. And the idea was not that you'd sit around and be lazy, but rather because you did not have to engage in servile labor, you could spend your life engaging in liberal labor, meaning things that were good in and of themselves. This is why if you want to look at some of the greatest works of art, literature, um, and culture, they all came out of this cold, they all came out of this society where you had people that actually they had free time and the means to engage in these things. Um, that if you look at all the great authors of like the 19th century in England, all of them have one thing in common, and that is they're all pretty rich for the most part. And so they actually and they have the time, they have the we say the leisure to engage in these works. But at the same time, I say not only are the works of the free man, but they also make one free, in that the entire purpose of these things is because they teach us more about the true, the good, and the beautiful. And if, as the Bible says, the truth will set you free, that what they do is they teach man more about him, himself, and they teach man about the truth, and so therefore they actually end up in the true definition of freedom, making man more free. So that's why those are called liberal labor or has because these are the, the works that make man free like work that has no purpose other than it's a good in and of itself and this is different than the servile work which is that work that has to be done for practical reasons now it's not that one is necessarily um, that you can have a world with one without the other um, that is not the idea like there is a certain degree that even servile labor can be done properly and can be done to the glory of God, that when I said that intention matters, that servile labor can also do, have a lot of good um, effects, but if you have it a world with only servile labor, then you have a very sad and diminished world, and if you had a world with only liberal labor, you would end up, everyone would end up starving to death. So you end up having, you have to have both. Now, 
I guess sort of a world without liberal labor, you end up sort of like a Stalinist Russia where there is no beauty. If you ever look at like a, there's a reason why you look at like apartment complexes built in the Stalin era, that there's just these blocks that there is no sense of like beauty and culture because they, they're following this Marxist idea that servile labor trumps liberal labor, that liberal labor is useless. Now, and one of the ways where you really see this distinction is in what's called the liberal versus the servile arts. And basically, what's meant, or, or another way of putting this, is that we see the distinction in education, the education that trains one for doing liberal labor or the education that trains one for doing servile labor. And like I said, the world needs both of them, and I'm going to distinguish between them, but we've gotten sort of out of whack where one, where servile education has become the norm and liberal education, just as liberal labor has become, um, I guess, derogatory. Now, so, like I said, what we use, the term we use, the liberal arts and the servile arts, just means the different types of education. Now, that prepare one for doing the different types of work, whether it's the liberal work or the servile work. And this I all got from, this was de, these ideas were developed during the Middle Ages especially, but the blessed John Henry Newman is the Catholic thinker who really um, elucidated and, and, and explained what's meant by all these, this idea of liberal arts, education, etc. So anyway, what the difference is that there's sort of, like I said, there's two different types of education. Now, a liberal arts education is one where one learns things not for any practical reason, just like you don't learn or you don't work for a practical reason. They, they learn things not because they have a practical application, um, but because they are good, they are true, or they are beautiful things to know. So that's the primary method um, for education um, in a liberal arts education. You learn it, uh, you read literature because it's true, and it teaches you things about humanity that are true, and because it's beautiful, not because it's necessarily going to, um, to get a better job or something like that. And we live in a world that has embraced entirely the opposite, where we view all education as needing to be servile education, meaning, to serve, meaning it needs to serve practical ends. I remember listening to Rush Limbaugh a couple of years ago, and while I actually do like Rush Limbaugh, he is, um, I guess, self-educated and does not, there's a lot of things with self, that are gaps that are missing in his self-education. And so one of them was when he was talking about this, this person that was a, that they saw this interview that they said they were, had graduated from college and they were a classics major. And he did not understand what a classics major actually was, meaning someone that had studied Latin and Greek and the classics and actually had a liberal arts education. And so he was making fun of this person and saying, like, what kind of job are they going to get? Like, what practical use did you, they do? And because he was viewing the idea that education entirely had to be servile. And this is sort of the idea that of all modern education has adopted. You go to, you go to school, so you become a good banker. You go to school, so you can become a good electrician. You go to school so you can become a good employee. Not because to necessarily to learn things, because things are good to learn. And it's, now that being said, the world needs good bankers. The world needs good electricians. So you need both um, the servile and the liberal education. But we've gotten a world that only views the practical as 
useful as important, and then sort of mocks the the the, the liberal um, as, like I said, as unuseful. Um, and I guess one of the great places you can see this is not only in like most universities and most um, schools, but actually a great place you can see this is I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Common Core. That's sort of all the rage right now. That if you're not familiar with the Common Core, um, and if any of you are really big into the Common Core, I apologize. That what it is, it's basically it, it's the, the U.S. Department of Education has decided that they want to have common standards by which all the states need to follow um, in their public school systems. So they've put together these specific standards that they want to be uniform throughout the entire country. Now, the problem is the standards that they put together are based entirely on a Marxist servile educational system whereby the whole purpose of the education has nothing to do with learning truth for truth's sake, but rather just to make one a better employee. As the, the Catholic author Anthony Eastland, he has a very great article where he critiques it, and actually in South Carolina he gave a presentation to the South Carolina legislature, basically telling them why they shouldn't um, adopt these, and he was saying that it's the humanities without the humanity, that you basically what they do with the Common Core is they... they that you read things like works of literature, you read a poem by Blake, not because it teaches anything about humanity, but entirely so for useful ends. So you have to look at it so you can learn how he uses his metaphors so that you can use them the same way in your writing and you can be persuasive, not because there's actually anything good in of itself. And the entire thing is, in, is it just oriented to try to make people and do better employees. And actually even large, the main theme of it is to not to over-educate people. Because you don't want to do that. You just want people to be educated to the specific amount that they need for their job. So like a truck driver should never be educated more than he needs to be just to drive his truck. Um, it, that's sort of the main idea behind it, is this idea of the servile trumping the liberal. Now, um, I need to speed up. Was there any questions about any of that before I move on? Oof. All right. Now, I'm slowing down a little too much. So going back to the... Third element, so we had the first element, they have to have stillness as, in order to have true leisure, but then secondly, the activities of true leisure need to be good of themselves. They cannot um, be servile work, actually, and that's why the church distinguishes on keeping holy the Sabbath, the catechism, when it talks about um, Sundays. It doesn't say rest from all labor. It says rest, actually, from servile labor um, because, because it's making that distinction between the two. And actually, one of the things we're going to get to in a minute is that the mass itself is actually a work of liberal labor and actually the crowning achievement of it. Now, so the third element of leisure is that of festivity. And so, um, and what is festivity? But ultimately, what festivity is, is it's a celebration. And in particular, that if you think of leisure as being opened and to receiving reality... What festivity is, is it's a celebration of that reality as good. Or, you can, or we can say it's a self, to, um, um, or we can say that to celebrate a festival means to live out for some special occasion and in an uncommon manner the universal assent to the world as a whole. That, um, that a feast is a celebration that creation is good by affirming the, the, source of this goodness, that you think of 
what leisure is, that leisure ultimately is it's to follow God's when he, the commandment when he says to keep holy the Sabbath. Why did God say to keep holy the Sabbath? Because God worked for six days, and on the seventh day he rested. And what did he do while resting? He looked at his work, and he said, it is good. Now, so what is it that we do in, in leisure? We look at the world. We look, one, at our work, and we can say whether it is good or not. But then we also look at the received reality. We look at um, creation, and we are basically in celebration. We are saying that creation is good, that we are claiming that God redeemed the world, that he became man, he entered into the physical world, and that the physical world is good. Um, that this is something that we actually have a lot of problem with in the United States, that there's a lot of Catholic cultures that really understand this idea of festivity. You go, for instance, like Holy Week in Spain, um, that they often don't remember why they are having the festivity, but there, is, but there is this ingrained idea of like the world being good and let's celebrate. But in the United States, being formed by a Calvinist culture, um, whereby inherent within Calvinism is a sort of a mistrust of the physical world. Um, and there's this sort of this idea that, you know what, the physical world isn't good, that God didn't redeem all of the world, just that he sort of, he saves us, but he left the world sort of as bad, um, that there's this mistrust, that this is sort of leached into all of American culture, so that whereby we end up sort of feeling guilty when we sort of celebrate um, physical um, the physical world, that when, we, that when we actually have like true festivity, that it's, it's sort of not necessarily natural to the American spirit um, in its proper sense. But that's not a good thing, that we sort of, something we need to overcome. Now, because the physical world is good. Now, I guess this, but this is the whole reason why this understanding of the physical world is good is the difference between why Catholics drink and Baptists don't. Um, I guess there's a quote or a joke I heard once from a priest when he said, the difference between a Catholic and a Baptist is that Catholics talk to each other in the liquor store. So, all right. Now, um, skipping over stuff because I'm going too long. Now, Now, ultimately, what is the um, most festive of festivals? And that is ultimately um, worship. That when you think about if, so if festival is a celebration of the goodness, then ultimately all festivals should start with, we should say, sort of the liturgy, because it is within the liturgy that we are affirming that Christ redeemed the world, that that is what makes the world good, that if it wasn't for Christ entering the world, then festivity would not be possible. Um, and this is why true festivity ultimately can only be rooted within religion. Um, it's this idea that, um, that we, well, and you end up, I guess we end up in a world where like civil holidays have sort of ended up trumping um, the Catholic feast days, and it's part of it is our distortion of what a festival should be. That we, for instance, have holidays now, things like Labor Day, where you rest from your work so that you can go and do more work, um, as opposed to sell, uh, living in a, 
and part of this is because we don't live in a Catholic culture, but as opposed to in a Catholic culture where the feast is actually basically, it stems from the, the religion and from the, the festival of festivals, which is um, ultimately found in the liturgy. And when you think about it, that the liturgy, um, what if you follows, is sort of like the high point of all of leisure. That if you look at all of the parts of leisure, the three elements, where are they most found? They are most found, you have this in stillness within the mass. That's why um, one of the things that is lost when they, that the church is trying to work on recovering, that the, when in 1962 with Vatican II, when they started translating the mass and they created the Novus Ordo, that there was a lot of good things that came with the, with the, came with the Novus Ordo and the translation of the Mass. But one of the things that they lost was the silence within the Mass. And then if you've ever been to one of the, a Mass in the extraordinary form, that one of the things that it has is this has vast amounts of silence that usually make people uncomfortable because we're not used to it, but it has large portions where the priest says the prayer silently and there's no singing, you're just sitting in complete silence. Now, so one of the things, the reason why Pope Benedict, when he issued his motto proprio, trying to extend the use of the extraordinary form, was the idea that, hey, maybe there can be a cross-pollination of the ordinary form or the Novus Ordo with the extraordinary form, where you can do things like try to get that silence and bring it back into the liturgy. Um, so anyway, so the liturgy is the high point of leisure. You have that silence, hopefully. Um, you have that... Um, non-utilitarianness, meaning you're doing it entirely for good and of itself, not for any practical reason. Um, and then last of all, if it is a celebration, a, a festival, it's a celebration of where, you're, where you're, we are affirming that Christ redeemed the world and made it good. Um, now, then as another part of festival, you know what, is... This is why um, I'm going to go a little bit over. But this idea of the, re that the reason why the liturgy is the high point, too, that ultimately, the, um, is in celebration, that one of the ironic things of, festiv of festivity is that, uh, that uh, one of the main portions of it is both celebration and sacrifice. And this is an interesting thing. When you look at even like the ancient world, that this is something man has always understood that you look at like the ancient Romans, when they would have huge festivals, they would always start it with huge animal sacrifices, then they would eat the animals and have a giant party. And ultimately, when you look at um, what true, the true festival is, which is um, when you say the wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven, that's exactly what it is. You have the sacrifice and the party. That they sort of, that they sort of go together. This is why the Mass is both a feast and to sacrifice at the same time. Um, and that this idea of the, like I said, the festival, another good, I guess a good way of putting it, when you look at like the beginning of Christ's um, public ministry and the end of his public ministry, you get sort of the bookmarks. That His first miracle was the wedding feast at Cana, where not only did he take the water and turn it into wine, he made it to a vast amount of wine. Um, that he started with a really good party. 
that when they, they used the description of the basins that they used, that there's something like, I saw and saw a thing that was talking about the, the actual size of the basins of water that he changed it to, and they were like 100-gallon basins. Like, it was huge amounts of really good wine. So he starts off with a party, and then he ends with a sacrifice. That, they, that they're sort of intertwined in true celebration, in true, um, in true leisure. Now, um, you know what? I'm going to end with, if I can find my last page. Sort of skipped over a bunch, but that's okay because I had too much. Um, now, um, one of the things I want to end with is how um, is how leisure that and if you're going to understand work properly, um, the, I guess there's a there's a quote that if you that if you don't um, get the Sabbath right, you won't get Monday right. Um, that if you that if you don't want to understand, like I said, we have a culture that, that just focuses on work, but we don't understand the work um, because we don't understand the leisure to start with. And that, um, and where, oh yeah. And so the reason, way that the two are connected, and this is something I want to go back, is that by focusing on the goodness of leisure, it's not saying that work is bad, like um, work is good, that the Bible has both this, is not an either or, but is a both and or Christianity is. And so it's both work and leisure are good. They both need to be done. Um, you need to work and you need to have festivity. You need to have work and you need to have leisure. And as Pope Benedict um, put it, that he said that authentic leisure enables people to see how work is good just as God on the seventh day looked at his work and said it is good. And he said that this connection... You're talking about this connection, sorry. He said that the biblical teaching on work finds its coronation in the commandment to rest. To rest in God is not to escape one's work, but rather an invitation to live out in our work in a new way. Um, now, an interesting thing about culture, like, that we really, I mean, this is something that we really are lacking. I mean, and this idea of leisure. And part of it is, like, we don't have... <clears throat> Um, I guess when you look, the easiest way to see how lacking we are is to look at times and places where we, Catholics truly understood leisure. For instance, like the Middle Ages. There's a lot of problems in the Middle Ages, but one of the things that they understood was there's, the Middle Ages were very incarnational in that there was very much a, a proper understanding of the, like the world being good and this understanding of leisure. And so even though it was a time when people didn't have, the, I guess, the free time that we had today, that when you looked at the amount of time that people actually worked, they actually only worked around two-thirds of the year because every single major feast day, they had giant celebrations. Um, so that, and it ended up being that they were celebrating like a third of the liturgical calendar. Um, but you think about that like today, like, all right, we'll have some celebrations, but like Christmas. Christmas is an octave. In the Catholic Church, there is not one day for Christmas. There are eight days. And if we were a culture that like, actually understood leisure, um, that there are cultures, Catholic cultures, that they have giant feasts eight days in a row to celebrate Christmas. Like there's a certain degree, like we do that, we, like, we celebrate Christmas on one day, we feel kind of guilty that we had a good time, we go take down the Christmas tree the next day, and we get back to work. That 
that if we're going to actually rebuild a Catholic culture, we first need to rebuild our understanding of leisure. Now, um, anyway, I'll shut up now. Does anyone have any questions, comments?